Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before we begin our episode today, I want to take a moment to thank five of our supporters on Patreon. These people are patrons of the March of History. Their names are, and I'm only going to say first names, Giancarlo, Ray, Peggy, Carrie, and Laurie. Thank you all so much. You are patrons of the March of History. You have joined me on this journey. And much like the Medici of the Renaissance who supported Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, you have now put forward money to support the artwork that is the March of History. The March of History may not seem like art at first glance, but it is historical tales told in an in an oral format, which is a form of art that goes back as far as human history itself. So you have put forward your hard-earned money to help contribute to the March of History, and I cannot thank you enough. We are on this journey together, and the March of History will only get better and better with your contributions. So thank you. Now, if you want to become one of these patrons, if you want to join us on this journey, you can go to patreon.com slash the March of History. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the March of History. There's also a link in the summary to every single podcast episode. And we have recently launched a PayPal account, which does not have a friendly link. So I have also listed that in the summary section of every podcast episode that we put out. So on the PayPal, if you want to make a single donation for uh, you know one time or donate per episode, you can do that. Or on the Patreon, if you want to donate per month, you can donate on the Patreon. So a few different options for you now. But thank you so much for your support, our patrons, and I'll talk to you in the episode. Welcome to episode 48 of the March of History. I am your host, as always, Trevor Furness, back finally from my adventures in Europe, back in the U.S. of A. It took a uh, quite a flight and quite a move. I had to move all of my stuff in various suitcases from Valencia back to the U.S. via Casablanca. So I had to fly on a uh, propeller plane from Valencia to Casablanca, Ended up spending the night in Casablanca Airport. Can't say I slept there, just stayed up all night. And then finally caught a flight from Casablanca back to JFK with all my luggage in tow. It was a bit of a harrowing journey, but it's done now. Took some time to set up the studio when I got here and to get my life in order. But now we are back on track and back to recording new episodes of the March of History. Now, to recap our last episode, we left off with Caesar and the Romans sailing a fleet across the English Channel to what they thought of as the mythical island of Britannia. There, when they arrived, they found their way blocked by the cliffs of Dover and a force of Britons waiting to contest their landing. Eventually, the Romans were able to find a landing place that wasn't blocked by the cliffs of Dover, But there, the Romans fought what was a relatively small skirmish against the Britons, but it was a difficult one because it was in the surf. The Romans were outmaneuvered by the Britons who had cavalry and chariots. But eventually, the Romans were successful in their landing in their ancient reverse D-Day and chased the Britons off and so gained themselves a beachhead on the island of Britain. And that is where we pick up our episode today with episode 48 of the March of History. 
Now, after that successful landing, Caesar and the Romans begin to build a camp on the shores of Britain. And very quickly, the British tribes that had originally attacked Caesar and the Romans when they tried to land send peace envoys. And they promise hostages to Caesar and they promise to obey the will of Caesar. And these envoys even bring with them a familiar face to Caesar and the Romans, a man by the name of Comius. Comius, if you remember from a few episodes, was the Gallic chieftain or king of the Gallic tribe, the Atrobates. In fact, Caesar had made him king of the Atrobates, so he, he owed his kingship to Caesar. And Comius had been sent over to Britain because supposedly he had great influence with the British tribes and his job was to alert them to Caesar's coming and to advise them to obey Caesar and to obey Rome. Now, when Comius arrived and gave this message to the British tribes, they promptly cast him into chains and did not listen to a word that he said. So either A, Comius lied on his resume and had nowhere near as much influence with these British tribes as he claimed when he talked to Caesar, or B, he did have this influence, but when your message is, hey, prepare to give up your freedom to some foreign power that you've barely heard of, the message doesn't go down too well and you get clapped in irons. So <laughs> take your pick. I don't know which. But either way, they had imprisoned Caesar's envoy, and now they've had a change of heart, and they're begging Caesar for peace, and so Caesar takes them to task for their fickleness. You see, these British tribes had sent envoys to Caesar in Gaul before he even left to seek out Caesar and make peace with him and the Romans. And it was only because of that, because the British tribes had sent peace envoys of their own accord to find Caesar, that he had sent Comius back with them to talk to them and, and to work out that peace. So when Comius finally got there, they clap him in the irons. It's, it's very fickle behavior. They ask for peace. When Caesar sends his envoy back, they clap him in irons. And then when the Romans try to land, they attack the Romans. The second the Romans win, then they come back and they want peace. So it's a maddening flip-flop between peace and war from these tribes. But as always, Caesar is in a forgiving mood and tells them that he pardons them for their lack of judgment. But he demands hostages. Now, the British tribes agreed to these terms and sent some hostages immediately to Caesar, but other hostages, they claim at least, are being summoned from outside areas and would arrive in a few days' time. They're, they're not here yet, Caesar. They're on their way. <laughs> They'll be here soon. You can imagine Caesar's heard these kinds of things before. But in the meantime, to make sure Caesar knows that they're serious, they begin sending their leaders to come before Caesar, and as Caesar puts it, commit themselves and their states to Caesar, which is interesting wording in, in the Gallic commentaries written by Caesar. He doesn't say that they came to commit themselves and their states to Rome. He says they came to commit themselves to Caesar. So you can see... Caesar's proconsular authority is creeping further and further beyond its original boundaries. Now, as all this happens, as the British tribes send their chieftains to pledge themselves to Caesar, four days pass by, and at the end of those four days, the 18 ships carrying Caesar's cavalry that have not been able to leave the mainland yet finally depart. And these ships get so close to Britain that the soldiers in Caesar's camp can see them in the distance on the horizon approaching the British shores. And just when you can imagine they're probably cheering and happy to see the cavalry on its way, suddenly a storm sweeps in and starts causing havoc. The 18 approaching cavalry ships are blown off their course and separated from each other. Some are blown all the way back to Gaul 
None of them make it to Britain. And this is obviously bad for Caesar and the Romans, but they have even bigger problems because Caesar's warships are beached by his camp and the transport vessels are anchored just off the coast of his camp. So the storm is not just wreaking havoc on the cavalry ships, it is wrecking his ships as well. Caesar says in the commentaries that the end result of this storm was that several of his ships were wrecked and the rest of the ships had lost their rigging entirely and for that reason are unfit to sail. What this means is that Caesar and his army are essentially stranded in Britain without a way to get home. And the army goes into an absolute panic. I mean, Caesar uses the word panic. They panic because they have no materials to repair these ships with and because... Caesar didn't pack them enough food or materials in general. This whole adventure has been a big gamble by Caesar from the very get-go to pack light and live off the land, to rush out before the cavalry was ready to go, and now it's looking like that gamble could have potentially blown up in Caesar and the entire army's face. Meanwhile, it's not just the Romans that are watching all this happen. The British tribal leaders see all this as well, and they realize that the Romans lack ships, they lack food, they lack cavalry. On top of this, they're getting over their initial shock of the Roman invasion, and they begin to realize how small the Roman force actually is. It's only two legions. Plus, Caesar left all of their heavy baggage back in Gaul in order for the legions to travel lighter. So seeing all this, the British leaders begin to realize that their initial fear of the Romans may have been overblown and that the Romans are not so fearsome and not so intimidating as they originally thought, and so they decide to renew their war on Rome. And according to Caesar, the British tribes didn't just want to chase the Romans off and chase them back to Gaul. They wanted to cut the Romans off from escape and so discourage future Roman invasions altogether, essentially saying that, if they can just wipe out this Roman force in one go and make sure that nobody makes it back to the mainland, this will discourage future Roman invasions. And that makes a lot of sense. And their strategy to do this is to cut the legions off from food and to turn this campaign into a protracted war that lasts into the winter. The reason being is because the legions don't have food. Once winter comes, they can't even get food from the fields. So the Romans will be in real trouble. And keep in mind, this is all happening in late August and into September of 55 BCE. So it's not like the Romans have a lot of time to wander around Britain and collect food. So as part of this plan, the Britons begin secretly calling their men back from the field. They had sent them back to their fields originally when they requested peace with Caesar. Now they begin calling them back again to form another army. And Caesar at this point admits in the Gallic War commentaries that he didn't know their exact plans, the Britons. He doesn't have any intelligence on their exact plans, but he does highly suspect that they have changed their minds and plan to fight, mainly because they've stopped handing over hostages. You know, that's always a, a clear signal that the enemies doesn't intend to keep the pieces when they stop handing over hostages that they've promised to hand over. But despite the fact that the Roman army is panicking, Caesar himself is not one to panic, and he quickly calms the panic among the army by putting them to work, by giving them action to do. Every day, Caesar begins sending out parties of soldiers to collect food from the local area. Meanwhile, he has the rest of his soldiers working on repairing the ships. Now, you gotta wonder, well, how are they gonna repair the ships? They have no materials they brought with them to repair ships. 
well, they begin to cannibalize the worst of the damaged ships, the ships that are past repair. They take the materials off those ships, and they use that material to repair the rest of the, the ships. And using this method, in the end, they're able to repair all the ships but 12, and those 12 they weren't able to repair is where they got the material to repair the rest of them. And I'm sure these ships are not perfect, but they are seaworthy enough to get them back to Gaul. Now, as this is happening, as the ships are being repaired, one day the 7th Legion is sent out to collect food for the army. Now, it's unknown to the 7th Legion at this time, but the Britons have been watching them for a while now and have set a trap for them. Now, just about all of the crops in the surrounding fields at this point have been taken by the Romans, except for one spot. That is that there is one spot that still has crops in the area around the Roman camp. Now, knowing that this is the place that the Romans have to go to get their food next, the Britons go there the night beforehand and hide in the woods nearby the field. And once the 7th Legion arrives, of course, they put down their weapons because they need to in order to gather these crops, and they begin to scatter about the field collecting crops for the army. And at that moment, when they are scattered and their weapons are down and they are unprepared, this is when the Britons spring their ambush, rush out of the surrounding woods, and kill a number of the 7th Legion. The rest are cast into chaos and disorder, and they are surrounded by chariots and cavalry, hurling javelin at them from all angles. And of course, since it's, again, just like the beach landing, it's cavalry, it's chariot riders... These people are too fast for the legionaries to catch. The 7th Legion is in a desperate situation, and somehow they need to get help. Now, just to take a brief break from our narrative, since the 7th Legion is surrounded by chariots, and since chariots make up such a unique part of the British tribe's armies, let's take a moment to talk about chariots. Chariots at this point in history are pretty much or have pretty much disappeared for military use in continental Europe. They're still used by the Romans for things like triumphs and for chariot races in Rome, but not for military purposes. They're more, you know, ornamentation for sport or decoration. And as we mentioned in our last episode, the Romans would have seen chariots as things of the ancient past. The Romans would have been familiar with the Iliad, or at least those that could read would be, and so they would have been familiar with the idea of Achilles and the rest of the heroes of the Trojan Wars cruising about on chariots through the battlefield. So it would have been a big deal to the Roman audience for Caesar and his legionaries to encounter real chariots being used in Britain in real warfare. I mean, it's incredible. You know, real chariots being used in warfare, and they're being used in a mythical land. In fact, Caesar felt that the Roman audience at home would be so fascinated by this idea that he digresses from his story to specifically tell his audience about the Britons' use of chariots in war. And I want to share that with you, but before I do, let me just give you some points of clarity. The chariots were drawn by two horses, and in a chariot they'd have two men. Now, one of the men would be unarmed, and he would be the driver of the chariot, and the other would be a warrior, presumably an aristocrat, and would have presumably been armed with javelins and a sword. Caesar says in the commentaries on chariots, quote, Their method of fighting from chariots is as follows. First, they drive around in all directions, casting missiles and generally throwing army ranks into confusion through the panic caused by the horses and the noise of the wheels. Then... When they have wormed their way in between the cavalry squadrons, 
they jump down from the chariots and fight on foot. Meanwhile, the charioteers gradually make their way out of the fighting and station their chariots so that, if they are hard-pressed by a host of enemies, they have a speedy retreat to their own side. Thus, they provide the flexible mobility of cavalry and the stability of infantry in battle. End quote. So rather than just being mobile missile-shooting machines, which they are, I mean, they're driving these chariots around and throwing javelin from them, but they are also used to transport the warrior on board so he can jump out, fight people, and jump back in his chariot and get away if he needs to. And Caesar goes on to talk about the British tribe's skills in using these chariots. He says, quote, By means of daily practice and exercises, they ensure that even on the steepest of inclines, they can hold their horses at full gallop, control and turn them swiftly, run along the beam and stand on the yoke, and from there get quickly back to the chariot, end quote. This is a fascinating glimpse into how good they were at using these chariots and how often they trained with them. They're kind of like circus riders or, or acrobats and the stunts they're able to do running along the beam that connects the horses to the chariot without falling and then swiftly being able to get back onto the chariot. I guess they would run up on that beam to throw a javelin better, get better aim, or, or get a higher aim. I'm not exactly sure why they would want to do that. But still, the fact that they had the skill to do it shows how often that they were practicing and how serious they took this form of warfare. Now, historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that chariots were expensive pieces of equipment and likely would have been affordable only to the aristocracy of Britain. And apparently there's a big myth out there that chariots would have had scythes on their wheels used to cut enemies down. I think you can see something like this in, in the film Gladiator when they reenact the Battle of Zama in the Colosseum. You can see the chariots flying around with scythes or spikes on their wheels that cut people. I think somebody gets either cut in half or cut, maybe their legs get cut off at the knees. I can't remember exactly which. But apparently this is entirely a myth, that this never happened, at least not with British chariots. There were no scythes used on British chariots, and they didn't fight that way at all. Now the last thing I'll say on chariots before we get back to our narrative is a little quote by historian Adrian Goldsworthy. He says, quote, Chariots allowed an aristocratic warrior to look spectacular on the battlefield, were mobile missile platforms, and let a warrior go forward to fight single combats on foot, and then retire as necessary. They came from an older tradition of warfare, which celebrated the personal prowess and heroism of an individual warriors. So in, in that quote, we can see that chariots, in addition to all their practical use, are used to sort of flex on the enemy to look cool when you roll up in your new whip, your new chariot, and to intimidate people, and then to be a getaway vehicle if you get too tired or if the enemy gets uh, too strong or, or is pressing you too hard. Now, let's get back to our narrative. As the 7th Legion is fighting for their lives in the fields of Britannia, the Roman guards back in Caesar's camp look in the distance and see a big dust cloud. Now, they think it's probably too big of a dust cloud for it to simply be the 7th Legion marching, and so they alert Caesar to this, and Caesar says he doesn't know of any 
plans that any spies or informants have told him coming from the Britons, but seeing the dust cloud, he does suspect that the Britons have launched an ambush on his troops, so he orders the two cohorts on guard duty to follow him, since they already have their armor on, already have their swords attached, and orders two fresh cohorts to replace them, and orders the rest of the army to follow him as soon as possible with their armor and swords. Now, Caesar and his two cohorts, already suited up for battle, make their way to where they see the dust cloud coming from, and as they approach the area, they see the 7th Legion, hard-pressed by the Britons, struggling to hold their ground. By this point, the 7th Legion is crowded together and surrounded by the Britons, who are hurling javelins at them from all angles. But, like so many times in the Gallic Wars... Caesar arrives in the nick of time with reinforcements to save them. Upon seeing Caesar and his two cohorts approaching with more cohorts on the way, the Britons back off and stop attacking the 7th Legion. And for a while, both sides face off against each other, neither willing to attack but neither willing to retreat. They're a little bit like two dogs growling that don't actually want to fight each other. For his part, Caesar says that he didn't think it was a good moment to go on the offensive yet. And apparently the Britons agreed, and so both sides, after staring at each other for a while, eventually turn away from each other, and the Romans head back to their camp. Now, before anything else can happen, and before the Britons can follow up this sort of ambush victory, a series of storms sweep in that keep the Romans in their camp for a number of days. But this weather also prevents the Britons from following up their ambush on the 7th Legion with an attack on the main camp. However, they do know the territory better than the Romans. They're not as afraid to venture out in a storm, so they do utilize this time to gather their forces. And after the storm's clear, Caesar says that soon a huge force of infantry and cavalry was gathered in preparation for an assault on the Roman camp. We don't know what huge means. Caesar doesn't give any numbers. He just says it was a huge force. This large British force then heads straight for the Roman camp. And seeing them approaching, Caesar lines his two legions up outside the camp to meet the Britons on the open field of battle where the legions are at their most deadly. And though Caesar's cavalry never made it to Britain, he does have, he says, 30 cavalrymen, which Comius brought over with him. So not much, but at least it's better than nothing. In the description of this battle, Caesar keeps it very simple. He only says that the Britons couldn't withstand the attack of the Roman legionaries for long and soon fled, and that the Romans killed as many Britons as they could, but that most escaped Again, because the Romans lack a real cavalry force and the Britons have all these chariots and cavalry that they're using. So, unable to catch the British soldiers, the Romans do the next best thing and they burn down as many farms and villages as as they can find in the area as punishment to the British tribes. And then they head back to camp. Now, later that day, the Britons decide that, hey, maybe these Romans actually are a serious threat, are not a joke, and, and can't be beaten easily. So they once again decide that they want peace, and they send envoys to Caesar. Caesar, you got to imagine, is fed up with the flip-flopping, and so he doubles the number of hostages that they have to provide. However, he does say that he's not willing to wait for these hostages to be handed over to him. By this time, it's September 24th, because Caesar actually mentions the, I believe it's the autumn equinox, so we know that it's September 24th, and he doesn't want to risk 
this campaign going any later into the season because it seems to him the weather is getting worse and worse the longer they stay, and he doesn't want to risk getting stranded in Britain. And the second that happens, of course, the war would be back on and they'd have no food. So he's trying to get out of Britain and back to Gaul as quickly as possible. And because of this, he orders the British tribes to send him the hostages back in Gaul and to ship them to him back in Gaul. Of course, in reality, there's very little chance of this happening if Caesar isn't perched on their doorstep with a Roman army. So the Romans then leave Britain on what is a relatively high note. They've beaten the British tribes in battle, and they sail back to Gaul. And the army must have been crammed into the remaining ships because they're now 12 ships short, and yet they manage to cram all the soldiers onto the transport vessels that are left. But they all make it back to their destination with the exception of two transport vessels which are blown off their course and instead these ships which contain about 300 legionaries land south of the rest of the army but still in Gaul. So it's not the end of the world. These 300 soldiers disembark from their ships and begin marching up to meet up with the rest of the expeditionary force. The problem is that on their march to meet up with the rest of the army, they have to pass through the territory of the very recently pacified Marini. Now, the Marini are supposed to be subdued by Rome, but the temptation to steal booty from these isolated soldiers is simply too much for them to handle. I mean, after all, these soldiers are supposed to have ventured to Britain. Who knows? Maybe they found fabulous riches there. There's only one way to find out is to steal it from them. So a small number of Marini end up surrounding the Romans in their territory along their march, and there they demand that the Roman soldiers lay down their arms or else be killed. Of course, these are Roman legionaries we're talking about. By this point, they are hardened soldiers of the Gallic Wars, so they refuse to lay down their arms and instead circle up to form a line of defense. In the meantime, more and more Marini begin to hear the noise of this altercation happening and come to join. And Caesar says that soon 6,000 Marini are there. It's a little bit like you can imagine a, a lion being surrounded by a pack of hyenas. You know, if the Romans were in equal numbers to the Marini, they'd, the, the Marini would stand no chance. But having the significant numbers advantage over these 300 legionaries, the Marini are the ones circling and they are the ones laughing. Eventually, the Marini begin attacking the Romans. The Romans are doing their best to fend them off. And for four hours, it continues this way. You can imagine how much stress these Roman legionaries were under. But despite this, in those four hours, only a few wounds are inflicted on the Romans. And yet several of the Marini are killed. Somehow during all of this, Caesar learns of what is happening and learns about the standoff and always the protector of his soldiers. He sends the entirety of the Roman cavalry force to save these men. Caesar says that the Marines saw the cavalry coming, threw down their weapons and ran for their lives. The cavalry then chased them down and slaughtered them, or at least as many as they could. And of the 300 legionaries that disembarked from those ships, not one casualty was suffered. And it's instances like this that build a huge trust and bond between Caesar and his soldiers and make his soldiers love Caesar. But of course, it isn't enough just to save his troops. 
The wrong done to them must be avenged, and the barbarians must be taught to respect the name of Rome. So the next day, Caesar sends his right-hand man, Titus Labienus, with the 7th and the 10th legions, the two that were just in Britain, to attack the Marini, who had made war on Caesar and Rome only the day before. Now, typically, when the Romans made war on the Marini in the past, the Marini would just go ahead and hide in the marshes in their territory, and the Romans couldn't get into these marshes. It would keep them safe. But this time, the Marini get unlucky, or else Caesar's luck strikes again, and their marshes at this time of year, or maybe because of a drought, are just too dried out to hide them from the Romans, and almost all of the Marini surrender to Titus Labienus. At this same time, Caesar sends out two of his other legates, a man named Quintus Titurius and another man named Lucius Cotta, to lead a force against the Monopii. This force of Romans destroys the Monopii's crops, burns their buildings, but the people themselves, again, as happened in previous episodes where we've talked about the Monopii, are able to hide in the deep forests of their territory, and the Romans are not able to get to the people themselves. But you gotta imagine the Monopia are just getting tired and exhausted of having their houses burned down all the time and rebuilding them all the time, right? It's not like you just hire a company to build your house again. This is backbreaking work they have to do. And when they're doing this backbreaking work, what are they eating to nourish their bodies? All their crops are burned down. So this is a big deal for the Monopia, but the people do survive. Now, I said that Caesar and the Romans had left Britain on a high note. And then they kind of did. You know, they had that last victory over the Britons. They kind of won the, the last move. But really, the whole venture is just a debacle. From leaving near the end of the campaign season when there wasn't enough time to really have an expedition on Britain, to taking too few troops with them, to not packing enough provisions, to the cavalry force never even arriving, to the storm that damaged the Roman fleet. The whole thing has been a debacle, a disaster. It doesn't make Caesar look good except for his great ability to get them out of difficult situations that he's put them in. But to Caesar, none of this matters too much, as long as they all survived, which they did. And the reason why none of this matters too much to Caesar is because in terms of propaganda, the first expedition to Britain is a sensational success. Rome goes absolutely wild. Bananas. They're doing backflips in Rome over this. They hear about Caesar's quote-unquote successful venture to Britain, and they go crazy. And it's not just the ordinary Romans that go crazy. The Senate votes Caesar 20 days of public thanksgiving to honor his achievements, despite what you can imagine would be Cato's undoubted opposition. And by the way, this is five more days of thanksgiving than Caesar had received previously from the Senate, and he had received that for three real bona fide campaigns that he had fought in Gaul of real value to the Roman Republic. This venture to Britain that had really no success and no material wealth brought back, received five more days of public thanksgiving. That's how crazy Rome is going about this. Ancient writer Cassius Dio sums all of this up in a suitable, grandiose way. He says, quote, From Britain, he, meaning Caesar, had won nothing for himself or for the state except the glory of having conducted an expedition against its inhabitants. But on this, he prided himself greatly, and the Romans at home likewise magnified it to a remarkable degree, 
for seeing that the formerly unknown had become certain and the previously unheard of accessible, they regarded the hope for the future inspired by these facts as already actually realized and exulted over their expected acquisitions as if they were already within their grasp. Hence, they voted to celebrate a Thanksgiving for 20 days. End quote. And that is where we will end this episode of the March of History. Now that I'm back in the U.S. and have my studio set up, we can get into a more regular routine of releasing these podcasts and not have these big gaps blocking our progress. So can't wait for more episodes with you guys. But before we go, let me go ahead and read one of our five-star reviews. We have, this is from they, their name is listed as person 2746, and it lists a whole bunch of numbers. I won't read them all. He or she says, I think that this is the best history podcast. You can learn a lot of stuff, and it is not like a history lesson. It is more like a true story. Instead of just saying it, he describes it. So I, I just want to say thank you very much to person 274, I'll call them, for that wonderful review. I have gone to great lengths and put in great effort to try to tell these historical stories in a way that is interesting and entertaining because I do think that at their heart they are very interesting and very entertaining. But so often history is taught in such a rote, memorized way with a forced memorization of dates and names. And that's just not a pleasurable way to learn what, what is really the story of us, the story of mankind. So I'm glad that that's being conveyed to you and that you're getting that out of these stories and thank you for the five-star review if you want your own review read on the march of history go ahead and leave a five-star review and say something that you like about the podcast and i'll read it on one of our future episodes in the meantime don't forget to follow our instagram channel that's at the march of history i have all sorts of content on there from the roman forum from the appian way from the island of capri from the Colosseum, from saguntum where hannibal started the second punic war much more from germany and, and eventually it's going to be more from munich and nuremberg berlin budapest prague ireland yes videos from ireland all over the place so all my travels and mixed in with a bit of travel content and a bit of or a lot of history content so go ahead and follow the march of history's instagram that's at the march of history unfortunately i'm mainly posting reels nowadays so none of those reels get pushed to facebook so the facebook's been a bit dead but hopefully they, they fix that soon if you want to follow us on facebook you should you can search the march of history Outside of that, go ahead and subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast Store or Spotify or wherever else you listen. And I noticed that Spotify allows you to leave five-star reviews now as well. I don't think you can write anything, but you can leave a five-star review. So if you listen on an Android device or if you listen on Spotify, go ahead and do that. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode of The March of History.